Hello and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. Now, if you've spent much time hanging out with economists, you'll know they come in two main flavours, macro and micro. Macroeconomists get most of the attention, talking about their forecasts for growth or inflation, which are usually wrong. You'll also find them sitting inside central banks, deciding whether to change interest rates. I had a conversation about the future of monetary policy with four distinguished macroeconomists this week. I'll play it to you a bit later. But you could argue it's the microeconomists, working away quietly on small bits of the economy, who've done most to change the world. Three who can definitely make that claim are the development economists Abhijit Banerjee and Esther Duflo at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, and Michael Kramer at Harvard, who this week all shared the 2019 Nobel Prize for Economics. The day after that news broke, I spotted Michael Kramer at the Bloomberg offices here in London and lured him into the green room for a quick interview. I started by asking him to explain exactly what the award was for. Michael, you were awarded the prize, or the three of you were awarded the prize, for your development of new ways to study and help the world's poor, to reduce poverty. You know, just for those who aren't familiar with your work, although I suspect a lot more are uh, now this week, um, what was the contribution that the three of you and this whole development in the discipline have made? What was different about what your approach? So I think... Uh, I think this really is an award for the field as a whole, and it's wonderful to be, be sharing it with uh, Abhijit and Esther, but the area of economics which focuses on developing countries has really made tremendous progress in, over, in recent decades. And you know, one element of that has been trying to approach questions with some of the same empirical methods that are used in medicine. So that's um, uh, randomized controlled trials is one element of this. Um, and that allows rigor in isolating the impact of a particular program from other factors, which is often very difficult in social sciences. That's, I think that's really only one element of, of what's being recognized here. There's, it's, it's partly that intellectual rigor, but it's not intellectual rigor by itself. It's trying to combine this with addressing practical problems. I've done a lot of work on education, health, but people in this field are working on a wide range of areas that, you know, everything from finance to ways to try to reduce corruption. And, and they're engaged in a very practical way with people on the ground, whether that's the farmers or the school children or the teachers or nonprofit organizations that are working in this area or developing country governments, which are really a key player in this area. And that on-the-ground engagement means that we have to sometimes think beyond the standard models of economics. I'm a big fan of the standard models of economics. I think they're wonderful, but they don't explain everything. And, you know, occasionally we need to bring in ideas from psychology or, or other places. I'm being facetious. Uh, we have a lot to learn from other, other areas. And engaging with problems on the ground and talking to people and seeing the data very clearly reminds us of that and forces us, I think, in a very good way uh, to to think more broadly and, and think outside the box of, of just our own, uh, uh, the models that we're used to. So give me an example of a sort of, uh, of, a, of a classic application of this technique. I'll give an example. Um, this is from my own, own uh, research. I was 
I spent a year teaching secondary school in Kenya after I uh, finished my undergraduate degree. And then when I got involved in this area of work, um, one of the projects that I was looking at was a project that was providing textbooks to many kids in, at that time in Kenya didn't have textbooks. And there's a debate in, in economics of education. Some people say, well, we need more resources. Other people say, well, we need better incentives for teachers. And these are, this is sort of the debate that economists have, have focused on. So this was a case of providing more resources, providing textbooks. And I was really shocked when I saw the results, which suggested that the textbooks were not improving test scores for kids. And I thought about it, and because I taught in this area, I, I, I had some context. And because I was dealing with teachers and students and, and the nonprofit organization, realized that many kids have fallen behind where the curriculum is because they've missed a lot of school from illness. Their teachers have been missing school. Um, the text, school in Kenya is taught in English after you get past the first few grades. Kids were learning in their third language, typically. So in that type of situation, it's very easy to fall behind. If you fall behind, then it's very hard to, to benefit from the from uh, textbooks, which are assuming that you're on track. So this is not something that's against economics. It's just something from outside of economics. It's something that every teacher would know about and think about, but that economists don't often think about. And by learning from this case, then other people were able to go on and try a whole range of different approaches. And it was found that, for example, providing remedial education to kids who are behind can help them catch up with the curriculum to the point where they can then follow along with the other kids and, and learn much more. And so there have been tremendous gains uh, in, in our understanding from that. And those are starting to affect policy as well. When you talk about uh, applying the same sort of randomized control testing and empirical approach to development economics and to anti-poverty programs that has been applied, have been applied previously in medical science, I mean, a lot of people listening would say, well, why was that such a new idea? I mean, it does seem odd. I mean, I, I was at Harvard in the, in the mid-90s, and it was, I guess we were just sort of starting to see some of this approach. But development economics, certainly from the outside, was, was still a quite an old-fashioned discipline. You know, why did it take so long for what seems like quite an obvious idea to take hold? That's a great question. Um, I think there are a lot of... of boundaries between disciplines and um, and you know I was just saying in another context how there are benefits to breaking those down and you know this I guess the use of randomized trials is another area where I think economics has benefited a lot from ideas that were pioneered in other disciplines um, I I think a key step was also working with nonprofit organizations that were interested in evaluating their their programs so there there are some very large-scale government programs that have been designed this way so uh, Mexico introduced conditional cash transfers. So this is a program that um, provides assistance to families if they have their kids in school and if they are getting basic medical care. And they evaluated that very rigorously. They found big impacts, and that program is scaled across much of the developing world. So there are some examples where very, of large government programs uh, having done this. But nonprofit organizations, they can't serve the entire population. There are many different nonprofit organizations trying very many different things. So working with them has been a great opportunity to learn about a whole host of the effectiveness of a whole host of problems. And increasingly, not just to learn 
whether things are working, but to better measure how they're, how they're working and why they're working. And that helps us develop a, a more general understanding from which we can, we can begin to have a better, have a better chance of, of understanding whether something would work in another context. People are always interested in how you hear about these things. You were in London. How did you get the call uh, to find out you'd won the Nobel Prize? Um, I was in London. I wasn't in the U.S., so they had trouble contacting me. I got a. Um, I actually, I was riding my bike and got off my bike and got a uh, a <laughs> Skype message and uh, it said, "Call me urgently." Nothing else. And I had been getting Skype me- or messages saying, "Call me urgently," which were scams so i assume people knew it was nobel week no or just no in general? no just in general it's a it's a new modern phishing technique is you you create a email like somebody you know you look up an organizational chart and uh, uh purportedly from my department head uh, saying call me urgently and then i i'm stuck and i need 20 dollars or something and so i i was preparing an email to um to this colleague to say if the, i assume this is a phishing scam but if it's real let me know and then i got a knock at my my door and um i found out it was it was actually real so. and did they and so then did you have a conversation with the nobel committee or uh, eventually yeah. I, I passed on my contact information in london and, and uh, uh 20 minutes later, I got a call from them. Well, that's so, so exciting. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, w- I think one thing that's quite nice uh, is we often are talking, and I'm often on Stefanovics talking about um, macroeconomics mm-hmm. and the way that standard macroeconomic advice is being ignored, whether it's by Donald Trump or by anybody mm-hmm. else. Economists don't feel very, they're having much of an impact on the world at the moment at that kind of macro level. I guess what is nice about this award is it reminds us that the microeconomics, the ideas, um, you know, people go out in the field trying to make things better, you know, still alive and well and has really made a big difference. I, I think it's it, it really is. I think there's, you know, there's a lot of a lot of organizations, whether it's governments or nonprofits or businesses, have practical problems and they're trying to come up with solutions. And I think at, at the microeconomic level, economists are increasingly working with those organizations and and trying to uh, provide assistance in finding those solutions. And we're, we're, we are seeing the impact in the, in the, in the world. Um, you know, another example of this would be trying to get out uh, basic preventive health care methods in the developing world, whether that's mosquito nets or water treatment solution or, or uh, uh, pills to treat uh, worms. And you know, there had been a feeling that it was important to charge for these and that people wouldn't value the goods unless you charge for them. And what's shown up time after time in, a, in empirical analysis is you just get a huge boost in participation when you make this available uh, for free. And there's been a huge shift in policy in that direction. And I, I don't want to claim that the evidence is, uh, is entirely responsible for that, but uh, I think it played a role. And that, I think, has had a, a tremendous impact on, on many people's health around the world. After that, it seems like a step down to think about central banks. But the best way to raise the amount of economic hardship and misery in the world would be to have another global financial crisis. And at this point, it's central banks we're largely relying on to prevent that from happening. How you stop a recession from turning into another crisis and what exactly we should be asking our central banks to do will both be on the agenda at the Bloomberg New Economy Forum in Beijing in November. We also got into it this week at the annual conference of the UK Society of Professional Economists in London, 
co-hosted by Bloomberg Economics. For a panel on the future of central banking, I had with me Claudio Borio, head of the Monetary and Economic Department at the Central Bankers Central Bank, the Bank for International Settlements in Basel. We also had Sir Charlie Beam, former chief economist and deputy governor for the Bank of England, Dame Kate Barker, who used to sit on the Bank of England's Interest Rate Committee, and Graham Turner, founder of the Economic Research Group, GFC. He's also an important advisor to the UK Labour Party. We started by all talking about whether central banks had the tools to respond to the next recession. Graham Turner, you've talked about we should be more optimistic on the sort of structural changes underway. I know that you've taken a good look at you know, how we might be continuing to underprice or sort of overstate the inflation rate on software and all these things. And I think there'll be some sympathy for that here. But you've also stated that climate could pose this seismic threat to that, to the, to the rates of investment. So how can you be optimistic if you think everything is going to be turned upside down quite soon? Well, I mean, look, I, mean, I don't know when climate change is going to really start to hit. I mean, it's going to have an impact in the next Well, in a year, you just years. said we might have, for, with Elizabeth Warren, we could, well, could happen in a year. But then, you know, central banks are going to have to... I mean, independence is going to become irrelevant. I mean, we've got to get away from this idea that, you know, independence is worth anything because ultimately, you know, it's about doing the right decisions, working with politicians. And, you know, we are going to have to be thinking about direct measures in the financial system to price. I mean, you know, Mark McCartney can say, well, the markets will start pricing risk for companies that embrace carbon targets. Well, maybe they won't. I mean, the markets didn't price mortgages correctly in 2008, so maybe they won't price carbon emissions mm-hmm. correctly. So maybe what the Bank of England needs to be doing, and, you know, there's some people doing some incredibly good work. I'd like to see somebody at Aviva. I mean, some of the work they're doing is fantastic, but massive resources need to be put towards modelling the climate change risk, talking and working with the scientists and say, what happens if the stock market goes down a long way because of climate change risk? What does that do to pension funds? Therefore, should we be saying to the politicians that we should be prepared to really ramp up the investment? And, you know, some people talk about green QE. I don't know we need to do green, green QE because ultimately I think the market will fund a lot of this investment if they can see that it makes economic sense anyway. Well, I think you've opened up lots of things for, for discussion. I don't know who, who, who wants to respond. I mean, Claudia, the, I guess there's two things there. I mean, threats to Bank of England, uh, to central bank independence are clearly coming from lots of directions, and this is one potential one. Uh, but there was this also, the, the claim that many people would share, which is that things, the sort of underlying structure of the economy and the technology that's coming through is a source for optimism, not only pessimism. If there is something I'm optimistic about is technology. Uh, I think that uh, I was never on the pessimistic side when people like Gordon were saying, oh, nothing worth inventing has been invented over the last 10, 15 years. You just look around and it's extraordinary, the pace uh, pace of technology. Now, one implication of that, though, is that um, if technology together with globalization and the like are factors that are driving down prices, then there is a big issue about the uh, targets that we now have, 2% targets, and the fact that, well, we need to hit them because otherwise our credibility is at stake. Um, uh, Volker himself was uh, asking questions about this. 
Because the concern, uh, one concern, is that if these forces are those that are driving inflation down, these are good forces. They're not bad forces. They basically in, they support growth. They support uh, economic expansion, which is why unemployment in part is as slow as it is. Um, but then if people are so concerned with inflation being a, below target and they try very, very hard to hit the target, even if these forces are at work, then you have the risk of running out of the room for maneuver. So I think that that's an important aspect that uh, was raised, and I think that bears some reflection. Kate, you were frowning through some of what Graham said. Well, I suppose I'm always wondering what's the responsibility of central banks and what's the responsibility of other people. So I completely agree that climate change is an enormous risk, whether the central banks are the best place to deal with it and work out pricing in markets or not, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm also sort of slightly worried as the um, chair of a pension fund that uh, after Charlie's finished, we haven't got anything left to, <laughs> anything left to, anything left to buy because he's bought it all. And also, um, we, may, we may be kind of investing in, the, investing in the wrong things. But I mean, the market is very busy at the moment, repricing different, repricing different assets according to the risks of climate change. We're all falling over ourselves in the investment world to find green, to find green investments and put our, put our money into them. But I want to go back to the point which Graham made at the beginning, which I agree with, which is that you asked us you know, how we deal if we need to re-stimulate the economy. But I agree that today in the UK, I don't feel we do have a great need to re-stimulate the economy, given how, low, given how low unemployment is. I don't feel that we're in an economy which has got a lot of spare resources. The issue is, of course, the supply side issue. We're not getting the right growth out of those resources. And that's a very difficult thing for a central bank to tackle. It seems to me much more the territory of micro-policy. Mm -hmm. Charlie? Yeah, I, I, I think there's a real danger here of expecting central banks to uh, do things beyond their, uh, their natural territory. Um, uh, the other thing to be said is that I don't think it's right to think about central banks as being independent. That's been, I think, one of the errors of the academic uh, literature that's focused on institutional independence, but all central banks are creatures of the state, and they have certain powers that are delegated to them uh, along different dimensions of which they may have different degrees of independence. And it seems to me that these sort of climate change type issues, which I agree are incredibly important, but there are actually ones where really government ought to be in the lead, yeah. with central banks uh, assisting uh, and having obviously a particular role in areas that impinge on financial markets, which is exactly where Mark Carney has been leading the Bank of England's efforts. And of course, there clearly are implications if uh, you have stranded assets and stuff like that. But this is something that's much bigger than that. And it really seems to me that that's something that has to be driven uh, by the political actors. And it's something, obviously, that has to be tackled at international level. Um, so yeah. so you know, I, I see the central bank as a subsidiary player here rather than the leader. I think the central bank has to take a much more leading role because if the Bank of England in 2007 had a turn around, or even 2004, and turned around to the Labour Party and said, you know what, this light touch regulation of the city that you're promoting, just letting all this uh, mortgage lending happen in a way that it was that we were seeing, you know, they might have actually put pressure on the politicians. And I think that you know, no, well, there has well, to be some. That's, that's fine because yeah. that's in the Bank of England's territory. So stuff that's to do that's with the, financial markets 
and regulation. Mm. Uh, it's entirely appropriate for the bank to be involved and to send messages to the Treasury or whoever when they have concerns. And indeed, the FPC has been set up to do precisely that. But the, the climate change agenda is a much, much bigger one. That's the Well, of course it's broad. I mean, of course it's got to involve the government. Of course it's got to involve the politician. But you know, we're just talking about, well, what is the role of monetary policy? And my point really was that I think there's an obsession we're focusing on the next GDP number, the PMI surveys. I'm not about you guys, but I get tired of looking at PMI surveys that go up and down and worrying about whether we should do a little bit more QE to keep an economy where the unemployment rate is already at you know, 40-year low. It is utterly pointless and irrelevant. For me, the most exciting part of what I do in my job as a market forecaster is looking at what companies are going to deliver big step changes in productivity. And I think that's my point about the report that I did for the Labour Party, which is that, you know, to get central banks thinking about productivity is really important. And of course, the blowback I got was, oh, no, productivity has nothing to do with central bank. Why not? You know, why can't they be thinking about what sectors do we need to be supporting to drive faster productivity? You know, why can't we be talking to the financial system and saying to a particular bank, why is it that your focus is on mortgage lending, consumer credit, and not on supporting companies that are desperate for capital or help us to become more productive. So, you know, these are crucial decisions which can't just be left to the politicians. And there is something, there is something in that which I think is broad, you know, which something which is all of you would probably be, be concerned about, which is the political, the perception of monetary policy is going to be increasingly important. I mean, has been very important in the last few years and could be very important. The monetary policy response to the next crisis could be very important. If that there could, the argument could be, well, you don't mind having massive redistributive and politically consequential implications of what you do if it's only about giving money to rich people who own stocks <laughs> and are having their asset prices pushed up by QE but when it's about giving money to poor people, suddenly you get cold feet. I mean, isn't there a bit of a... Don't you have to actually start thinking about the other side of some of the... You know, you, your, your hands are already dirty, would be the argument. So why, why now be so concerned about the politics? Well, I think I mean, the, 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 the distributional consequences, I think people are absolutely right to be concerned yeah. about it. It was appropriate in the emergency. But you've talked about how you would do, you could, you would do more no, of that. No, 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 on the contrary. I, I was saying no. the technical limits are a long way off, but long before you get to that, you have the political economy considerations and also the distributional concerns. And there isn't the democratic support for that sort of uh, action, I don't think. Monetary policy, you know, always has distributional uh, effects even in normal times, but it normally sort of short-lived and it swings and roundabouts. What's been unusual about the last decade is that the period of low interest rates has just gone on so long and people have been conscious of those distributional consequences. The other thing, should be said, is QE works by driving up asset prices, so it very conspicuously benefits those who are asset rich at the benefit of those who don't have assets and want to acquire them, like the young. And I think that's something which shouldn't really be left in the hand of central banks. It's something that finance ministries, treasuries, and politicians need to own, not the MPC. 
But the central banks will then end up, will still have to be implicated in some of that, potentially, by at least yeah, but, but the thing is that, providing the assurance that but, it but they would be But they would be doing it as agents. If, if governments say, yes, we're willing to accept those distributional consequences, and they can use their fiscal tools uh, to offset them if they don't like them, if that's possible. Uh, but you have to have a world, I think, where uh, the, the politicians and fiscal authorities uh, say, yeah, I'm willing to accept those distributional consequences as the uh, cost of using this particular monetary instrument to fight a significant downturn. I absolutely agree with what Graham says about, you know, we shouldn't be worrying about little uh, twiddles in uh, activity and stabilizing that. Well, Careful, there's people here who have to be very concerned. <laughs> well, 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 they do, but, uh, but the, the exam question you set us was a significant downturn. Um, but possibly one that uh, wasn't a replay of the financial crisis, you know, whether it's a, a Brexit, no deal or whatever, yeah. but something that requires a policy uh, response is the ammunition there. And, um, my concern is that uh, there is already a large expectations gap, which is undermining central banks' legitimacy between what they are expected to deliver and what they can deliver. They're expected to make sure that inflation is at 2%. They're expected to make sure that the economy is at full employment. They're expected to make sure that financial stability is there. Now, they have a clear remit. It's already a very ambitious remit. I think that adding further stuff onto that is not the right way to go. I think uh, there is an issue about uh, clarifying what the various responsibilities are of the government and the central bank. And unless we do that, I think in a few years' time, we'll find ourselves in a place where we would not like to be, just as we have with a number of the measures that have been taken in the past. I mean, I very much agree with what um, Charlie said about, about distribution. We had, because we, ne we didn't really think at the beginning this was going to be so prolonged, so we didn't really think about the distributional consequences, and nor, I think, did the government think about how to, how to offset them. But I think they, uh, the point I would make, I know it's a familiar point to... Charlie, is that although the distributional consequence of asset price is kind of in your face, the distributional consequence of rescuing people from unemployment are also pretty mm -hmm. important, but they're more hidden. People find that harder to link in, and, the, and somehow central banks haven't tackled that properly, talked about why, why it is that it looks so, looks so in your face. But some, when people try to deny their distributional consequences of QE, that's not right either. Hmm. Even some people at the Bank of England have done that. Even oh. some people at the Bank of England have done that. Thanks for listening to Stephanomics. We'll be back next week with more on-the-ground insights into the global economy. In the meantime, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, website, app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review our show so it can reach more listeners. And for more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics during the week, follow at Economics on Twitter. Or you can also find me on at my Stephanomics. This episode was produced by Magnus Hendrickson, with special thanks to Michael Kramer, Dame Kate Barker, Claudio Borio, Sir Charles Bean and Graham Turner, David Beatty and the Society for Professional Economists. Our executive producer is Scott Lamman and Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts.